What are your writing dreams? Finishing that book, quitting the day job, becoming a best-selling author? Well, over four years, we've studied the advice of over 300 best-selling authors who've collectively sold over half a billion books. And we are excited to announce the Best Seller Academy. If you're ready to take your writing to the next level with accountability, craft, and coaching, your bestseller dreams are now only a click away. To find out more and apply, visit bestsellerexperiment.com forward slash academy. That's bestsellerexperiment.com forward slash academy. Let's run the show. Hello and welcome to the Bestseller Experiment, where we continue to discover what makes a bestseller and inspire you to start, finish and publish your book. I'm Mark Stay. And I'm Mark DeVoe. And thank you all for joining us again this week, whatever you might be doing, whether it's the washing up, outrunning, gardening, or even procrastinating and not writing. Welcome <laughs> one and all. And we'd like to also thank all of our incredible patrons and Bestseller Academy members who make this podcast absolutely possible each week so this week we'd like to thank our new patron dan mccrory thank you so much dan for joining in the fun excellent stuff and if you would like to join dan please pop along to bestsellerexperiment.com forward slash support and get tons of extra goodies such as many 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 hours of amazing deep dives on some very very specific subjects which will potentially change your writing life so we have heard from many, haven't we, Mark? Oh, yes, we have indeed. We so have how indeed. are you, sir? How's, how's everything life in, uh, in the old Kent? It's good. I actually went to that there London town last <gasps> week. Oh, yeah, I went day to the, out. The Big Smoke, yes. Well, it was the first. I had to do some research because uh, the fourth um, Woodville book has a uh, postman in it. And I just, I'm writing it and thinking, I actually know nothing about the life of a postman in wartime Britain. And it's surprisingly difficult to Google. And I asked my postie and he said, go to the post office museum. And I went up into the archives, proper mm. archives. And the archivists, they were fantastic. And they got me these old magazines, the post office magazine, which is, it came out every month and it's got all these little bits of information. It was Gold, absolute gold. And then it was, it was I just, you know, it's that, that little thing where you, it's like a school trip, you know, because it's a yeah, totally. and everything. I bought a book, you know. Did you have a packed lunch? And Yeah, I took a packed lunch and Good. I bought a, you know, a key ring. Um, <laughs> <laughs> did you bring something home for your mum though, Mark? <laughs> I did, I did. I bought some, yeah, some biscuits, some cheap Good. biscuits. Um <laughs> And then, uh, and then in the afternoon, I went to the British Library and did some editing because I'm editing uh, the book three at the moment. Mm. Uh, and then I met a friend, a writer friend, and we had drinks and gossip. And it was it was the closest I felt to normal for about two years. Oh. Uh, funny enough, um, so fantastic. That was a really good fun day That's out. Fantastic. Was, uh, Question: yeah. Did did they did they give you white gloves? I remember looking at I watched a Calvin and Hobbes um, a documentary once. Absolutely oh, love yeah. Calvin and Hobbes. And there's a there was a museum set up, and you could actually look at the very original some of the original illustrations that uh, Bill Watterson did. Ooh. But like, can you imagine, right? But they everyone who was in there, they were given this pair of pristine white gloves, kind of thing you'd see the Queen wearing, and you know they they had to touch it white. Did that was that the case in the post office? Uh, no, not not for this. But I was told I couldn't use my 
pen. I was given a pencil. No pens allowed in case you spill ink over something. Oh, really? Um, Interesting. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Love it. But the one time I did have to use gloves, and this is uh, <laughs> now, here we go. <laughs> I'm a big, I'm a, I'm a big Stanley Kubrick fan. Okay, very right. big Stanley Kubrick fan. And a writer friend of mine said, "Did you know all the archive is at?" Um, the Elephant and Castle. There's an there's an art institute there, and you can't do this anymore. But if you had a reason to be there, you could book a visit and look at his archive. So oh. me and a couple of friends said we were making a documentary. Of course. <laughs> Which you were probably in. planning on doing at some point in your yeah, life, yeah, right? Yeah, I could, yeah. Could, could still do it. Could still yeah. do it. Oh, of course, yeah. And they let us in. And it's... <laughs> you know, you know those archives where you turn the big wheel and the whole thing slides to one side. It was full of his scripts, his with his pencil notes in the margin. Oh my god! You know, for two thousand and one and Napoleon, the film he never made, and the Clockwork Orange and The Shining. Oh wow! And I, we were just going through this stuff, and it was just incredible. And then, like just uh, just before lockdown, there was a big exhibition. <laughs> at the uh, at the design museum, all about Kubrick, and it was all there under glass. You couldn't touch you it. Couldn't touch you know, it. And you had to pay like fifteen quid to get through the door <laughs> to see it. And I was like, "Seen that, mate? Been there, done that." So yeah, you can't do that anymore. But um, sniff, yeah, oh, sniff the page. Absolutely, actually yeah. sniff the page. You can't do that with a glass cabinet, well, can you? He touched those. Those were his scripts. Wow. You know, it's it's touching the hem of genius. Super inspiring, isn't it? That really, to get really that is. close to someone, it really makes you feel like you could literally. Someone used to yeah. walk around the street, back streets of Cambridge. You know, thinking of all the footsteps I was following. Yeah. Literally, um, yeah, that's amazing. But if you're a writer, if you're a writer, don't be afraid to ask to go to the archives. Because you never know what you're going to find. I didn't I had no idea what I was going to get, but you always get something out of it, and you can pack a pack lunch and get something from the gift shop. Well, here's, here's <laughs> the thing as well. I think it's it's also must be a really great way of of reinvigorating you if you're kind of in a you know if you're stuck in your book and you're just feeling a little less inspired. Anything like that can really fill you up with loads of ideas and inspiration. So I love it. I must admit, then, when you said I have a story about when I last used gloves. I was a bit concerned you were going to say during my summer job in the airport, but I'm, I'm glad. I'm glad that it was Stanley Kubrick. That Everything was a much better story. <laughs> oh my gosh! But isn't that isn't that brilliant? Now, question: Did you, when you were looking at this post, this Postman Post Office magazine, was mm. are we talking about something in wartime? Like it was a nineteen. This was 1930. It was 1939. It stops in September 1939. Funny enough. Yeah. So the paper shortages or whatever, you know, other priorities, you know, defeating Hitler. Um, But uh, (laughs) it was all all the run up to it. And of course, you can see, you know, they know a war is coming. What that's really interesting. These little changes, but it was just all these little things. So it, it's it's monthly. And what I love about these old magazines are the adverts because they oh, tell yeah. you about the lifestyle of people at the time, what what their ailments were, what things concerned them. There were these lovely little adverts where you know, if we want to go on holiday now, we go to the website and we can see the the Airbnb or the resort or whatever it is yeah, we're going virtual to. Tour. Yeah. The, the, this, these adverts say things like, send off for a fascinating uh, detailed uh, booklet, pamphlet on, on this uh, holiday home that you'll be staying in. And, you know, you, it's be somewhere because they're all in the UK. You didn't go overseas for your holiday, not unless you were super posh. Um, right. So, you know, you'd end up going to somewhere in Wales, you know, uh, some cottage somewhere in the middle of nowhere and you turn up and 
you had no idea what you were going to get. Yeah. So holidays then, if you could afford to take one, was such a gamble. Right. And no, and no trip advisor to, to have a good old <laughs> no moan way. about no, the, the no. bugs in the bed, <laughs> no running water. <laughs> Isn't it amazing though? Isn't it amazing? I mean, it, it, it does, it, it can must, it takes you right back into that time. And mm. I think in some ways it's one, I mean, one of the, amazing things like right now right now my focus right now obviously people are very focused on all the scary stuff happening in the world but what i'm desperately clinging on to is feeling grateful for the stuff that we've got right and and i think you know just to be able to go into the kitchen and get some food out the fridge or turn you know get a glass of water from the sink but i think when you go back into the archives mm. and you read stories you see adverts of what people are actually advertising it does make you appreciate what we have today and i guess there's a real yeah you have to kind of get into that to get into that mindset of the character that had to live through times where those certain things were kind of the normal way yeah. of life and um, I love it. Really, really fascinating. Yeah. God, everyone should do that. All right. If you've been to an archive somewhere in the world, let's have the most interesting archives that people have ever visited. My dad actually went to Mauritius many years ago as an excuse um, <laughs> because we have, my grandfather's born in Mauritius. So he he went and did genealogy and he spent the whole oh. time in, they went several times and, and he, he traipsed around graveyards. I mean, talk about a split holiday. My My mum was on the beach having a wonderful time, you know, sunbathing and <laughs> swimming in the ocean. My dad was traipsing around graveyards and looking Brilliant. in old books. Um, <laughs> but, um, but yeah, it's, it, you know, the stories that he came back with, uh, the things that he learned about our family history, absolutely fascinating. And mm -hmm. gives you also gives you a kind of a context of where you are in the world today as well. It's brilliant yeah. stuff. Excellent, yeah, yeah, yeah. excellent yeah. stuff. Um, you also mentioned before we jumped on that, um, there's been a few more developments with your uh, with your little um, project that's kicked off in the last few weeks. Yeah, well, this this um, this movie, we, like I said, we've got a first chunk of money, and um, we're about to offer the role to uh, the lead one of the lead roles to an actor, and they're American because the producer wants at least one American in the script because we're American investors. Mm. And so uh, I've been Americanizing two characters <laughs> who are related. You can't Americanize one without Americanizing the other. Right. So that's um, that's something I'll be... And, and that happens quite a bit if you're a UK screenwriter, you know, because, mm. you know, if the money comes from America, they're like, well, we want an American in the story. So that's like... Okay, but in this in this instance, it's sometimes it's like, oh, how am I going to crowbar, yeah. you know, uh, yeah, yeah. an outsider into this? But in this one, it's actually it was really easy. It was just you know changing a few, uh, change, just it was a dialogue change. The rest was was really straightforward. But um, but it's good fun. It's good fun because you know myself and the director we go through the script doing silly accents, all the really bad sort of New York accents all the way through it. So that was fun. <laughs> 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 excellent stuff excellent stuff and talking of um talking of big opportunities you we had chance you had the chance to chat with an incredible author who's been on quite a journey the last oh, eight years should we say and least, tell us a bit yeah. tell about a bit about our special guest kathy bramley today mark well kathy bramley she's she's you know um, author, author best-selling author of romantic com comedies uh and She's a bit of a legend. Uh, and as you'll hear in the interview, she was someone whose name kept coming up again and again and again as someone who was doing something 
different, who was doing something extraordinary uh, that we frankly struggled to replicate ourselves. So it was, uh, I've long wanted to speak to Kathy. And um, she, you know, she's the author of best selling romantic comedies like Ivy Lane, Appleby Farm, Conditional Love, Wickham Hall, Plumbery School of Comfort Food. Uh, and uh, she comes from a marketing background. And I think this is why she's been such a great pioneer. She's got a new book called The Summer that changed us. Um, but she tells us all kinds of stuff, not least um, yeah, there's stuff about a, an extraordinary book launch, which has a, a unique twist. And um, she, she talks about uh, working with books that have been serialized before coming out as a full novel and, and how that's changed the way she writes. Brilliant. And listen out for my one of my favourite titles of the year, and I'll tell you about what that is <laughs> after. <laughs> so let's jump in and have a listen to Mark speaking to the absolutely lovely Cathy Bramley. Cathy Bramley, welcome to the Best Seller Experiment. How are you today? I'm very well, thank you. Thanks for having me. It's a real pleasure. It's our pleasure. Absolute pleasure. We're going to be talking about your book, The Summer That Changed Us. And as, as is usual, whenever I do an interview, I, I look things up, I look at reviews. Now, at, at the time of recording, the book isn't out yet, although by the time this goes live, the book probably will be out. But I'm just, I was looking at Goodreads, looking at the reviews, and I discovered one of our long-term listeners and patron supporters and author, Penilla Hughes, the author of Punch, Drunk, oh. Love, and probably the best kiss in the world, she's given it a review, and it's five stars, so you can relax, Cathy. It's five stars. But just, just to give it some sort yeah. of context, <laughs> Penilla says... The summer that changes swept me away. The northeast coastal setting and the sea glass collecting and the heartwarming relationship of these three women. Strangers at first, they each have their troubles, but as a sisterhood, they support and encourage one another. And who wouldn't want that in their life? A gorgeous read with vibrant, ballistic women, sensitively faced issues and heroes you'll want for yourself. Can't ask for more than that. That's uh, that's a fantastic review. Thanks I that love that woman. <laughs> I love that woman. <laughs> She's amazing. She is absolutely amazing. So... Uh, I mean, that kind of sets us up. What else can you tell us about the summer that changed us, Cathy? Um, well, started off, I had the idea for it years ago, actually. Um, and I was at a Christmas party and there was a, it was all people from my husband's school, you know, a long time ago. Not He's not a teacher. So it was a long time ago. It was all a bit of a reunion. And uh, one of them was living in uh, Northumberland on the coast in Amble and uh, she she got a picture for her friend like a small frame and it was I think it was a heart sort of made in stones inside this frame I said that's really beautiful what is it and she said it's sea glass and I didn't really know much about I'd heard of sea glass but I never really thought about too much about it I said wow that's absolutely beautiful she said well it just you just we just find it on the beach and my friends and I would go for a walk on the beach and it's like therapy you know we're picking up the sea glass and putting it in a basket and chatting away to each other putting the world to rights and I was like oh my god that's just the perfect setting for a book you know one of my books or women supporting each other doing something really nice being on the beach you know I love I love beach and the sea myself mm. um and I just so I had this idea years ago for this book all thanks to Julie Smith thank you Julie and um I thought you know what I'm gonna I'm gonna give that a go so I then started to think about what the story could be and brainstormed it with one of my children and we just came up with the idea for these three women all different ages different life stages that met unexpectedly on the beach um, and then started to get together uh, to talk about to, to collect sea glass but also they've all got some like an absolute nightmare going on in their lives and the strength of the friendship enables them to sort of 
work through their problems and uh, you know work towards a happy ending. Wonderful stuff. Uh, just to dial back there, brainstorming with with one of your children is this? Are you kind of family that sits around the dinner table and you start bouncing story ideas about? Is that how it works? Well, it used to be that I would get them in the car, lock the doors, set up on a long <laughs> journey, and say, "Right, let me tell you about my next book." But um, they're older now, so Phoebe's twenty two, Isabel. 20 and I actually think we might have been heading um up to the northeast coast or no it can't have been anyway wherever we were going I said I've got this idea and what could the secret be what could one of the youngest one what could her secret be so we started brainstorming all the things it could be so yeah I you know they're they're really good at that sort of thing and they don't actually read my books (laughs) annoyingly but I'm I'm I have said, you know, one day they'll be in charge of my estate and they'll have to read them. And, you know, the longer they leave it, the more books is going to be. So it's about time that they split the list between them and started reading. This is uh, this has been weirdly, this has been a running theme over the last few episodes. Actually, Kathy, you're not alone. I, I, my kid, I can't get my kids to read my books. Uh, and we've had a couple of authors say exactly the same thing. So it's um. It is a. It seems to be quite a common phenomenon with with authors trying to get members of their family to read their books. Is that for the best? Do you think, or is it something that they need to be involved with? Or well, I think with the with the two of them, they're very. Um, they've got so much other stuff in their lives, and mm. you know, young people with phones have got so many different you know forms of entertainment in their pocket that getting them to actually read um is quite tricky they're both were massive readers when they were little and they do like to read but they just don't have a space in their day for it it'll come back to them i know it will mm. it will come to them eventually and they'll yeah phoebe will read a book on holiday right. um isabel will occasionally have a spurt of reading and then put books down for another year so it'll you know it's there mm. Okay, good stuff. Uh, I, on, I was looking at your social media as well, Kathy, and our listeners, I'll put a link to this in in the uh, in the show notes. But there, there was you had some pictures the other day at Orion, uh, your publisher, and there's all kinds of pictures. What they call champagne moment, where you all gather yeah. a bit of champagne for <laughs> or whatever. Uh, and there's Sam, friend of the podcast, Sam Eads, with a cooking pot on her head. Uh, can you yeah. can you give us some sort of context for that? <laughs> All I can say is, you know, since maternity leave, she's been, you know, she's gone off on one. No, uh, I'm doing, I've done an article for a magazine that'll be out in ne- next month for the woman in home, and um, it's called the article's called, or well, the feature's called, "My Life in a Picture." And it's a regular slot every month, and I, we, we decided we'd do something about the, the summer that changed me, basically. So we, mm. we summer, we, we, we sent us a lot of pictures all around the summer when I graduated and I had this mad summer of freedom and doing all these different things. I sent loads of lovely pictures of me in bikinis and me in tropical places and everything. And the, the picture they chose was me in a tent in the <laughs> where I'd been flooded out with a, with a saucepan on my head. Um, <laughs> you know, comedy value. <laughs> the comedy value obviously won the day over the glamour. Um, and, uh, yeah, so, so she thinks this is hilarious and decided when she did her little introduction to the champagne moment to talk about the book that she would wear a saucepan on her head. So 
It'll be all the rage this summer. You see, in Paris, they'll all be going around with saucepans on their head. Just just you wait. Let's go back to where it all started, because your story is extraordinary. And I remember when I was at Orion, before you were published by Orion, I worked worked in the digital department. We did e-books. We did, you know, we looked after Amazon. And your name came up so much because of the innovative way that you published your stories. And it it was just extraordinary. But let's go right back to your first book, Conditional Love which you self-published. This was, I think, 2013, 2014-ish. That's right, yeah. Why, tell us why you went down the self-published route to start with. Um, I'd been to lots of different writing events and uh, festivals and you know, weekends and stuff, and everything that I was hearing just kept repeating the message that agents receive 2,000 unsolicited manuscripts a week, the chances of being picked up, da, 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 the chances of being published, da, 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 da. You know, it was just so depressing. And, and actually, I just didn't like the statistics. So I thought, I'm not, I'm, I'm not going to do that. I'm not going to submit a manuscript and then sit miserably at home to be rejected. So my, my own background um, is in, sale, in marketing and PR. So I had my own PR and marketing agency for a long time. And I thought, I can market a book. I, can't, I don't know anything about publishing, but I can market a book um, because I should be able to market anything. You know, uh, but what I don't know is if can I actually write one? <laughs> so I set myself the challenge to that was the tricky bit. So I set myself the challenge to write this book, and um, I thought, well, I'll self-publish it, and I will, I will just do, I will just use everything in my armor to um, to try and get publicity and to try and get sales, and uh, so I did. And so I I launched it myself, and I decided I would. I live in a little village and we have a, a phone box that's been converted into a library or a book exchange. Yes. And I thought, well, that's that's the perfect place to have a book launch. Um, and uh, I approached the Guinness World Records and said, I'd like to I'd like them to go for the world record of the world's smallest book launch. <laughs> and um, they wrote back and said, and I, was thinking, I was honestly, I was there. I was thinking about, you know, them turning up with the tape measure and everything, Norris <laughs> McGuirt, <laughs> trying to measure it, you know, uh, showing my age. And, uh, and they wrote back and said, no, sorry, we can't, we can't measure that. So I thought, oh. well, never mind. But I thought, well, by then I'd said I was, I was going for the world record anyway. So I just carried it on, carried on the theme, invited the mayor uh, to come down um, and got permission to take all the books out of the telephone box and put all of mine in. And um, I had a call from the mayor's secretary the day before. It said, he said, she said, um, yeah, we're still looking forward to tomorrow, but we just can't find the bookshop uh, <laughs> uh, where, you know, where you're having the launch. I said, oh, well, don't worry, don't worry. There'll be plenty of bunting. You'll see it. You'll see the signs. And, of course, there I got this huge ribbon tied up around the phone box. And um, <laughs> he was a very good sport. And uh, he cut the ribbon. And inside was all my books. So that was that was how I launched it as the world's smallest book launch. And actually, it's I've had loads of publicity from that. So even though I was didn't really set a world record, it has uh, it gave me a lot of publicity. And the book did really well. And um, I got my second book lined up to go. Uh, I sent that out to agents, a, an agent. What am I talking about? An agent because I'd identified who I wanted to be with at the time. And um, uh, she was like, "Yep, yeah, just send it me for Christmas, and I will read it." And but. During that period, um, I had a phone call from uh, another editor who said, I've got an idea. Um, I would like to discuss serialising uh, some fiction with you. What do you think? And that 
led me into the the other thing you were hinting at there about the way I have published. Well, before before we jump into that, before we jump into that, because this is this is extraordinary. This is you know you used all your marketing and PR genius there to and 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 boo to the Guinness Book of Records for not turning up to that because that would be amazing. Um, but yeah, I, I I've looked you know I've been looking into this. You you sent reviewer copies. You did you organ helped organize a blog tour. You did all the kind of indie stuff, which is fairly commonplace now, less so than than, than when you were launching. Uh, what were the biggest lessons you learned from that what what were the was there anything you would have done differently um I don't think I would have done it differently I think I was happy with what I did what I did learn was that self-publishing is really really hard work um it really is and you know I I having run my own PR and marketing company and hearing people say well I can do that myself why should I hire a PR company when I can do that myself I knew full well the benefit of having all that team around me, um, you know, is to, that you would get in as a traditionally published author. So that was the big appeal for me is to having a team of experts that I can rely on to, to do certain bits of it. Otherwise, you're just wearing so many hats. Yeah. And, and I think you can, as a self-published author, you can do as much or as little marketing as you wish but there's never really an end to it. <laughs> you mm. can always do a bit more. Or well, that applies to Whatever, however you're published, I guess. Um, but it does mean for me now that I can focus on the writing a bit more mm. and less so on the marketing. And that I found really heavy going uh, when I was by myself. But then, like as you say, you you, you sent off uh, to one agent, uh, which fascinates me. So you, you went through a process of, of figuring out the best agent to send your book to. How, how, how did that work for you? Yeah, yeah. Uh, it was good. What I did was I went, I, I was obviously self-published and then wanted a traditional publishing deal. And I'm particularly happy to, to, to take on someone that has been self-published. Um, so I knew that this particular agent had been, um, had taken on other authors that I knew. Uh, she also I knew that she had contact with the editors that I was interested in working with. So I, I really did my research and I used Twitter for that a lot. Twitter was great for that sort of thing. Um, so, yeah, heart, highly recommend going that route and, and doing your research before you send off a lot of different um, of different pitches to people. And you also, as you say, you got the, the attention of an editor at uh, Transworld. And so they got in touch with you and they suggested this idea of serialization. So, so tell us about that. Uh, well, it was Harriet Borton at the time, who was, uh, I think she was senior editor at Transworld, and she'd, she'd had this idea of releasing fiction maybe monthly. Actually, her idea was monthly. I quickly put the kibosh on that. So <laughs> no way I can do something monthly. So uh, I had the idea for doing something set on an allotment. And I thought actually, because it's being outdoor and uh, we could link it into the season. So I managed to sell her in on the quarterly idea, which seemed to go very well. And that was the, um, that was the way we continued actually. Um, and yeah, she had this idea of just sort of having something which is almost like on subscription really for mm. readers that they could buy into for 99p and just sort of you know buy themselves a, a novella which actually is a 
great way of getting to know a new author, you know, without having to um, spend a lot of money. Um, and it just seemed to work. So I loved the idea. We did um, Ivy Lane. I wrote Ivy Lane first, and that was published in four parts over 2014. And then the paperback came out the following year. Um, and, we, and I wrote another one. So the second serial then came out in the same year, 2014, which I think was Appleby Farm. Would I be right? I think it was, yeah. Um, and so, yeah, it started from there. And um, it seems to do really well. Readers liked it. There were always a few that told us that we were trying to rip people off. <laughs> 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 trying to rip people off by uh, by splitting it into four parts. But actually, we weren't because the, the full book was £4 and the mm. individuals were 99p. So it was the same price. As I understand it, Cathy, what happened was you would you would release the four parts and then at the end you would release the, the complete book. Is that correct? That's right. So we would have uh, the, the four parts would either be, they would be roughly every two months or every six weeks. And then after the fourth part, there'd be about three or four month gap and we'd release the paperback and a full ebook, which contained all the four parts as well. Um, and readers seem to love it. Um, it's it, it just really grew. And, and I could tell from the market because there were other people coming in and doing similar thing, that it was obviously working across the board for other publishers too and other authors too. So yeah, it was quite an exciting time actually. It, it really was. I can tell you from my perspective, working at Orion, you know, we had lots of conversations about this, thinking about how we could replicate this and how we could do that. And and Harriet, I, I know Harriet because she went on to work at Orion and she's an absolute genius for this sort of thing. But publishers can be very, very inflexible about scheduling and it was quite difficult to replicate i think uh but it clearly worked for you i mean it you had the wickham hall series lemon tree cafe a match made in devon appleby farm plumbery school of comfort food a patchwork family you know that this is the pattern that that worked for you and i know it's something that indie authors have done but of course they you know it's something they can do because they're they're an in often just an individual but uh, it, it worked brilliantly, and it gave you such a great spread of of you know of of uh, stories for your readers. The the one thing that fascinates me: did the serial format make you more conscious of keeping the reader on the hook? That idea of you know every maybe twenty thousand words or so having some sort of cliffhanger, having something that brought the reader back. Absolutely. And I love writing like that. I, I thought it was going to be really difficult. Once I'd done Ivy Lane and Appleby Farm, I said, God, this is a great way. It's actually a really refreshing way to write. Um, so I would view my novel as a four-part drama series, you know, like if you was going right. to watch a four-part drama on TV. So each episode has to have something major and leave you with a question at the end or, you know, so there's got to be a, the rising action has to be in each part. Uh, but still with an overarching story, which, you know, mm. takes the reader from the first the first chapter to the last chapter. And I found that really fascinating. And um, it actually, even though I don't always write in series form now, I still think that way. And um, so Hetty's Farmhouse Bakery, which I didn't serialise, that is written in three parts. Um, <laughs> so, right. so actually, if anyone ever wants to make a drama series out of that, there's three episodes there ready to go. So <laughs> just uh, you know, just put it out there. So that's it. Do I do find it a really lovely way to write? And and when I was when I'm in the first draft mode, which is you know a bit of a slog, I can sort of have a little breather after I get to the end of part one, part two, part three. It's like ah, oh, 
you know, quarter. Whereas when you're writing a whole book from zero words to 100,000 or whatever, you know, it seems like a never ending journey, doesn't it? Mm. But breaking it down and having a little celebration at the end of it, perfect. That's such a great way of thinking of it. Brilliant. Absolutely brilliant. And as you, as you mentioned there, a lot of your more recent novels, so White Lies and Wishes, Merry Christmas Project, My Kind of Happy, and The Summer That Changes, the new book, they've not been serialised. What's prompted that change? Is it just sort of changing the market or the change that you've been working? Uh, what, or is it just that, you know, you wanted to try something different? I think it's nice to be a leader in a trend. Um, but after a while, I think, you know, you have to be the one that maybe innovates and looking at a different publishing pattern and that's something we're considering now can't say too much about that but uh that's something we are looking at a new pattern for going forward um and also you know there is now an awful lot of novels that are sold at 99p almost continuously so there's this 99p market and you know when and it's difficult to offer value you know when you're selling your novella or the quarter of the novel for 99p and the whole one for 399 you know but a lot of your competitors are out there at 99p you know it's it sort of reduces the value of the market doesn't it mm. so um there's always that to contend with i think you know as the market's changed i think you need to change as well change with it absolutely no, fantastic um one thing uh, i've seen crop up in in interviews with you as well is that you've you've mentioned that um the books the novels are essentially standalones but there are crossovers from other books. So you've said readers of My Kind of Happy will recognise the florists and some of the customers from reading the Lemon Tree Cafe and Patchwork Family. Um, so this is the Kathy Bramley literary universe, you know. So how do how do you how do you keep track of all that? Uh, well, actually. <laughs> With great difficulty. <laughs> uh, I, when I start a new book, I always have an A4 notebook. And then in the back page, I write A to Z down the side, you know, on each line, A to Z on every every line. Um, and then I'll write any new characters' names I'll write. So if I've got Aiden goes on the A, you know, uh, Zach goes on the Z, etc. So then I can always keep track of the names. And I've got all those books, so I can go back and check all the names, which is really good. It also stops me... Um, you know, having, I've just written a, a scene, which I had a Lisa, a Lavinia and a Leslie, all in one, all three new characters, all in one scene, you know, so it, it stops me from doing that. Um, but I, I, you know, I asked my readers, actually, can anyone remember <laughs> what's the name of the dog? Oh, you know. So, so that I do that as well. Um, but I, I do really like that. I like having, um, we, those books that you mentioned, My Kind of Happy, The Lemon Tree Cafe and A Patchwork Family, were all set in a village called Barnaby. Um, and it's just characters from that village and mm. the, the things that they get up to. So you don't really need to start at the beginning. Um, mm. But some people like to do that, you know, because relationships do develop. But uh, in fact, the first one, precursor to all of those, was the Plumbury School of Comfort Food because um, the... Rosie, who's the main character in the Lemon Tree Cafe, was somebody's flatmate in that in that <laughs> first book. So it sort of goes right back to then. 
Um, and I wasn't planning on doing another book. After I did The Lemon Tree Cafe, I had no intention of writing another book in that village, but a reader got in touch and said, could you do a story about Gina, the childminder? I think there's more to discover there. I was like, is there? Wow. <laughs> I, went back to, I went back to read about Gina. I thought, oh, yeah, do you know what? You might be right. So, so that's, <laughs> that's how that happened. That's so, brilliant. Thank goodness for eagle-eyed readers, that's what I say. Yeah, fantastic. Now, normally this is where I ask what you're doing next, but it sounds like you're doing some sort of top secret, innovative, super duper <laughs> marketing project that's going to change the way we read books. So I guess you can't <laughs> tell oh, us God, to. I think I may have over that one. <laughs> <laughs> can, can you tell us anything about what's coming next? I can. Uh, so I'm just doing um, the second draft of my Christmas book. Uh, so I had a, my first ever Christmas book came out, out last year. It's called The Merry Christmas Project. And this year there will be a sequel, an wow. actual sequel, which I've never done before, called Merrily Ever After. And I'm just working on that. So that'll be out for this Christmas. And, and I've had lots of people asking for a sequel. And I keep saying, yes, for once <laughs> I can say, yes, there is one. <laughs> what are the, what are the, what are the challenges so far in, in writing a sequel if you've not done one before? Um... Well, to keep it to keep the story fresh because obviously you put your main character through all sorts of trials and tribulations and you don't want to have to put them through hell again a month a year later it doesn't seem very fair so it's, <laughs> it's bringing something new to the story moving their story along but bringing something entirely new to it as well so that's what I I hope I hope I've done I'm quite excited about it actually it's quite different it's hard it's the hardest book I've written actually Although, to be honest, Mark, I think I might say that every time. Yeah, I know the feeling. (laughs) (laughs) I know the feeling all too well. Um, Folks, the summer that changed us is out now. It's got a beautiful, bright, sunny cover. It's exactly the kind of book that's going to get us through this year. So grab a copy right now. Cathy, thank you so much for speaking to us. It's been absolutely brilliant and hope to speak to you again soon. Yeah, thank you. Thanks for having me. And that favourite title that I mentioned, Mark. Go on. A match made in Devon. Absolutely brilliant. <laughs> Love it. Quintessentially, how quintessentially English can you get? But I, yeah. I have a very special place for Devon in my heart. If you're in Devon listening to this podcast right now, I do envy you and I love love your county we used to go on holiday in devon all but the people time. do brilliant. devon and cornwall devon and, and devon if, and if, cornwall. You know, people outside oh. the uk might, might not understand this but devon and cornwall are kind of this peninsula at the sort of bottom left hand corner of the uk stunning landscape absolutely amazing uh Good surfing there as well, actually, yes. which is unusual Newquay, for the UK. That's where we went yeah, from holiday. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, and it's, you know, full of wonderful history and magic and castles. And, it is, and, and because people, I mean, we, we had this with Liz uh, Fennick as well, because she writes about Cornwall. Um, because people like you have that association because they it is the place you go on you go Devon and I mean I've been to both you know Devon and Cornwall on your holidays as a child everyone has a, a has you know a soft spot for those places so when you write a novel about how special Devon or Cornwall is people are going to go yeah I remember that and they're much more likely to pick it up absolutely oh love it absolutely love it I mean toffees seaside village shops i mean you could go on couldn't you brilliant stuff but and i see how i'm getting very nostalgic now being mm. here on the very far furthest west coast of canada but what else is is more what, what would you say is more quintessentially english than a, a box of toffees from devon it has to be <laughs> the good old red british telephone box it, do, yeah, it doesn't yeah. get it doesn't get better than that does it 
But this is brilliant, absolutely brilliant. Yeah, it's one of those things when you, when you walk through London, you often see tourists leaning out of one, having their photo taken. Oh, completely. It, you know, happens all the time. Um, I, I can't remember the last time I actually used one to make a phone call. <laughs> it's probably about are twenty they, years ago. Do they still actually? Yeah, they they don't have phones in them anymore, do they? I think some of them do. Yeah, but they also have the like internet hubs as well, and uh, you know, so yeah. And the, the thought of getting into a red telephone box to go and go to the internet kind of would make you think that <laughs> something really scary would happen, like it might take off, turn into a rocket ship, or or do some kind of Doctor Who kind of equivalent. But um, I absolutely love the story that Kathy talks about. I mean, what a brilliant idea! Um, and you've mentioned that before, haven't you, on the podcast that you've actually got a You've got a book library in a red letter, a, a red telephone box. In is it in your actual village or? Yeah, nearby? it's just up the road. It's like a mile up the road. And uh, if I go for a walk, I'll take some you know old books with me and pop them in. Um, and when I get when I publish a new book, I always pop one in there, whether they want it or not. Well, uh, <laughs> that's that's a bit of a risk, though, isn't it? That was like the time that my car got broken into. And they ransacked everything. And I had in my glove compartment a copy of my album, and it was the only thing that was left. Right? So, so, so it's, it's, a bit of a, it's a bit of a risk putting your book in the library and walking past it every day yeah. and going, bloody hell, no one's taken it yet. Yeah. <laughs> Three years later, it's like cobwebs up in the corner, like, yeah. bloody hell, well, if you don't want it, I'll, I'll have it back then. But no, it, it, I love it because we've got we've got a few, the thing in Canada, at least where I live, um, they're lovely, actually. People have like chopped, if they've had to chop a tree down in their front yard and they've got like, they've, they've kind of got a pedestal of a, what used to be a, you know, the trunk of a tree. And then they build some beautifully ornate wooden book box, I guess you'd call it. Yeah. Um, yeah. And it's quite, yeah. but it's quite small. I mean- you know, book box, but I think of like telephone box. That's a that's a proper library. That's like got shelving and everything. Right? Yeah. How many books can you get in one of those things? Yeah, well, there's some. Um, uh, there's, there's quite a few, uh, and um, you know they're all sorted alphabetically. They've got children's books at the bottom. It's yeah, so they're a librarian full. almost that's actually yeah, going someone, and sorting I think them some- every day. I think oh, someone I in the parish it. is is in charge of it, it and goes in and, and refreshes it and all that kind of oh, thing, which is great. So yeah, fantastic. And it is great. I'm 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 slightly annoyed. I didn't think of the phone box book launch myself. It was well, right there in it. front of me. It was, <laughs> and it always is. It always is. This is the thing. This is the thing. And we talked about this. In fact, we talked about like doing crazy ideas of you know thinking of something, but it. Kathy's proven, and, and obviously she comes from marketing and PR background, so her kind of mind works that way. You know, she kind of she's been yeah. in that world, and so she'll always come up with a question like, you know, what's the kind of craziest, strangest, most brilliant way to to gain free publicity and launch this book? But I think it's absolutely a brilliant lesson for every author. You know, a lot of authors say, "Oh, I'm not good at marketing," but the point is, is that you just need some imagination. And what do you have in abundance as a writer? Then imagination. I mean, you come up with all these crazy <laughs> things that happen in your book. Well, come up with a crazy thing of how to promote your book in the real world. It's not about marketing or PR. It's just about being inventive and coming yes. up with something original and different that people you're, want you're, to write about. 
You're absolutely right. We apply that imagination to everything but ourselves. Yeah, it's just a mental block. It's just, it a, it's like, oh no, I can't do marketing. It's like people who say, oh no, I'm not good with computers. You know, I, I press a button and something goes wrong. It's like we predetermine in our minds that 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 we shouldn't be allowed to touch or think about anything. But it's just this kind of sense of the unknown or having never ever come up with an idea like that before. And I absolutely love it and totally applaud Kathy for doing it. And and you know, how much of that was part of her? story as an author like how much of that gave her that momentum and impetus that ended up leading to all the success it it gave her a photo in the local paper of her cutting a big ribbon and the mayor is there and then that makes because she said she self-published that first book in order to get the attention of agents and publishers so now she's getting publicity and she's got that proof. She's got that proof to take to them, say, look what I did. I love that she invited the mayor. That's one of those things, again, <laughs> uh, mayors in the UK, this isn't like in the States where it's actually quite an important position. With all respect to mayors with their big, long medals and everything, it's like, what do you actually do except come along and cut ribbons? I'm sure they do great <laughs> things. But honestly, because uh, it makes me think there's a comedian in the UK called Joe Lysett who had a had an opening for his kitchen extension and he invited the mayor and the mayor came. <laughs> it's got a little plaque up and everything so you know (laughs) uh, it's it's worth you know if you're um it's funny when i did that literary uh festival a couple of weeks ago um they weren't mayors but they were a lord and lady they knew they knew malcolm the other author and a lord and lady came along and tweeted about it afterwards you know so uh over in the uk we've got rent a toff you know you can just i tell you what if i was going to do a book launch in in and, and get some royalty over in the uk it would have to be the um i can't remember the name of them now the people that wear all the uh um, milk bottle tops on their shirts. Who are those folks? Oh, well, like Pearly, Pearly, Cockney, Cockney Pearly, Kings, Pearly King, Pearly Queen. Pearly yeah, yeah. King and Pearly Queen. He's that's at Mother Brown. He's at Mother Brown. <laughs> Chaz and Dave, Chaz and Dave would be there to do the, uh, the you know, the, the musical entertainment in the pub afterwards. But yeah, I mean, but the point is, is that there's a wealth, you know, we all think about, oh yeah, Facebook ads. Oh yeah, Amazon ads. <laughs> I mean, do you know, Really, when you think about it, there's there's a lot of free opportunities out there which yeah. will probably get you way more, way more than you know than than paying Mr. Zuckerberg even more money. Um, so I think it's, it, I mean, do it just for that. Just just do it to like to, to yeah. like in in defiance. To stick of it like, to Zuckerberg. Stick it to the stick it to the the big boys. The man. Um, you know, but uh, I love it. And so if you've had, uh, so we want to hear about from you if you've ever had a unique book launch. We want to hear about it. Send us send us in your book launch and we'll give it a mention. Hey, if it's really good, we might even get you on the show to find out a little bit more about it. <laughs> Especially if it, you know, like Kathy, it ended up leading to some really incredible things happening in your in your career. So do get in touch. Come to bestsellerexperiment.com and click on the contact box. And the secret is that little form comes directly to me and Mark. We don't have like, you know, our team of staff that... <laughs> Go through our emails. I wish we did. <laughs> I know exactly right. But our mailbox each week, and then pick out. You know, we picked out a couple for you to go through, uh, sir. You know, no, we don't. We actually read. We get these emails directly to our inbox. So you will might you might get a response from one of us. Um, oh, yeah. But we do read them all. So do do please get in contact. Um, now, Mark, what else? What else jumped out for you? Well, let's talk about this serialization thing. This this idea mm. that you know she did the four small books and then released them as a big book at the end, as a as a complete novel at the end, and that was 
that was, I think it was uh, she said it was Harriet Burton uh, Burton rather at Transworld, who then, funnily enough, came to work at Orion, and she she's terrific. She's one of those editors who is always you know on the cutting edge of stuff, always looking for new ways to do things. And the fact that Transworld came to Kathy and said, "Let's do this," that makes all the difference, I think, because mm-hmm. I know other publishers have tried to replicate it. I know we tried to replicate it. Uh, actually, we did it with um oh what's his name? The guy who wrote Downton Abbey. Julian Fellows. Yes. We we did it with him. We he had a series called Belgravia that we serialized, but it was such an upheaval. It had to be a major event. It's not something that everyone can do because publishers are so I said they're kind of inflexible in the interview with Kathy, but the fact is we publishers have a critical path away because you've got all these different departments all queued up to do things a certain time with so you've you know you've got the sales department the marketing department the publicity the production department the art department they all have their moment in the critical path and it's always so many months ahead of publication and if you start shifting that about then you really upset the apple cart things can go really really wrong so this to do something that that Harriet and Kathy did at Transworld would have been a big upheaval would have been a big gamble no one would have known if it was, if it could have actually worked, but they made it work, and it worked, you know, absolutely brilliantly. I think so it's much amazing. so they did it again and again. You know, yeah. I mean, it made me realise actually listening to that. It made me realise that. I mean, I've always banged on about the importance of events. You know, as an author, you want as many events as possible because that keeps you, you know, it keeps you in the in the in the world of the of the reader. It gives you content to post, you know, and and emails Mm. to send out and, you know, Twitter posts and Facebook posts and all that good stuff. But I can totally appreciate now that a launch for a publisher, a major publisher, whether it's for a, you know, part one of a four part serial or, you know, the the next big major blockbuster from a major blockbuster um, author, it's a lot of work. It's a lot of work. So to do kind of four of those for what in essence is one book, um, is is hard, but from an indie author's perspective, I think mm. it's a lot more doable, and it actually actually oh, yeah. really helps, doesn't it? Because what's the hardest thing as an indie author? But how do you keep on getting your name out there? How why you need another excuse to kind of reach back out to the audience, and and it's not just a kind of like a little update, but it's actually hey, it's part two of my four part series coming out. I think it's a brilliant idea. Absolutely brilliant. But I also loved what Kathy said about this idea how, of how it forced her to really think about some major moments at the end of each one of those yeah. quarter books. And yeah. surely, surely, by the time the final book comes out with all four parts, you're going to have a stronger book there, right? Because yeah. if you've got like, if you've had to come up with four major cliffhangers or three yeah. major cliffhangers, I guess, and then the, then the climax, that's going to be a great read, isn't it? Yeah, absolutely. And she talked about it as a four-part TV series with rising action in each part. And I think that's terrific. That's mm. a really great way to think of of, yeah. of storytelling and keeping the reader on the hook and uh, delivering on, you know, the the promise of uh, of of the story. Yeah. So I and it's it's even though she's now writing full-length novels and not doing the serialization thing, it's carried over it's still into there. her writing. Yeah. Absolutely yeah. brilliant. And in yeah. fact, you know, it, it reminds me of those conversations we had when we were writing Back to Reality, where we were getting not just down to end of 
like parts, you know, the, the, the end of that whole whole arc, if you like. But we were trying to bring it right the way back down to the end of each chapter. And so it's a great reminder to everyone to say, you know, are you keeping your writer, your readers on the hook? Are you making them stay up till 2, 2 a.m. in the morning when they've got an appointment the next morning because <laughs> you've, you've put something on that final page? Or, you know, have you stopped it partway through where you just left them wanting more? I think it's such a massively important thing to think about. And mm. I love the fact that this kind of model in some ways forces you into doing that. Um, the other thing I wanted to mention actually was a really interesting analogy to draw with this four part drama. Cause one of the things that I've noticed in music, um, over the years is this idea of an EP and you think mm. about it in terms of books, you know, there isn't really an EP there's, there's, there's short stories and then there's, you know, the actual book. Whereas in, in music, you've got singles, you've got EPs, which stands for extended play and an EP for people that aren't familiar. It's like typically like a three, four, five yeah. track um, mini album basically. And it's actually very, it's always been very popular. It's even more popular now. Yeah. Um, and it can precede the album. And then obviously you have the big, you know, thing at the end, which is the album. And I've always said to people that if you're doing, if you're going to release an EP, don't just release the EP because that's one event. What you should do is you should release single one, single two, single three on a four track EP. And then the fourth track is the EP with the extra track on it. And mm. I was wondering when I was listening to, to Kathy talk about this, I was thinking it's interesting that it's part one, part two, part three, part four, and then the book, the way I would have done it would be part one, part two, part three, and then release the book with the new part in it, which means now that could be hard for some people that have already bought one, two, and three, and then they have to buy a but if it's 99p anyway, it doesn't make it's, any difference. But this is so weird because I had this exact conversation. Really? <laughs> in a in a market when we were talking about doing this at Orion. How and funny. someone suggested that. And I said, that's fine. If you want the author to be flooded with one-star reviews from people <laughs> going, what a bloody ripoff. And I know Kathy said, you know, the <clears throat> she got accusations of rip-off there in that they're buying the whole and then you can buy yeah, it we're as, get as to one that whole thing. But if you if you don't You've got to give people the option. You've got to give people the option of, of okay, I want to do this in four parts and that's lovely. Or I'll wait for the whole thing and and yeah. read the whole yeah, thing. Yeah. But if you if you go one, two, three, and then they've got to pay out another six, seven quid for the full oh, thing. Oh, I guess if it's a, yeah, we see the thing, the interesting way, I guess you can't really do it this way, but the way to do it is if you've already bought the, if you've already bought the first three, you get the fourth one, you know, you, you get the book for like the cost of what the fourth one would be, but that's probably too hard to do in terms of. Oh, yeah. Amazon. I mean, you should try, no. try and work that one out. Yeah. But that's the kind of that's the way that a lot of people do it in music. But the interesting thing is, is that it's actually a model that's very successful in music, and they do it. Yeah. They always do it every time they release the compilation album, the greatest hits. They always, <laughs> in fact, Massive Attack. I've got a, a chip on my shoulder at Massive Attack because <laughs> we were we, one one time in our life when we were uh, we were pitching a new single to BBC Radio One, Radio Two. And it was a Joe Wiley show. Remember Joe Wiley show all the way years? Yeah, I think yeah. she's on BBC Two now, isn't she? Radio Two. But we were head to head that week. We it was either us or Massive Attack, <clears throat> whose single was going to get picked to go on the playlist at Radio One, Radio Two. And it, and what Massive Attack had done is they were literally just releasing their great greatest hits, and they'd written the new song because yeah. they always do that. They always stick yeah. one extra song on 
just so everyone's got something new. And it's it's usually not very good. <laughs> it's usually it's the one like, this isn't even a, this wasn't even a hit. It's, it's not, not even, even a hit. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Yeah, yeah. But you've got to and, buy the album. Yeah, yeah. And, you know, they yeah. picked they picked Massive Attack over us. So, you know, I Which, love Massive Attack. Stream, streaming, streaming's changed that though. What they're doing now. So I, my favourite new band is a band called Wet Leg. And they released a single called Shays Long and, and they've released, you know, two or three singles. And then the album is coming in April. And what they're doing is I got a notification saying, because I subscribe to Apple Music, as some people subscribe okay, to Spotify. Yeah, so yeah. they're going, oh, new song. And it just keeps reminding you that there's an album coming. Because, of course, mm. albums are becoming a bit of an anathema. You know, people, yeah. do people listen to albums anymore or do they just create playlists? But this idea of getting people excited about the album, so you drip feed tracks in the run up to the album's release. And again, how we, you know, how we do that. Is, I mean, what, well, I, what, I've, what I've been doing as a, as a writer is I'm doing lead magnets. Uh, so mm-hmm. I had, um, so last year I had what I called the Miss Charlotte Quartet. So if you've read The Crow Folk and Babes in the Wood, there's a character called Miss Charlotte, and she could be hundreds of years old. And if you want to know her backstory, it's in that quartet. So I released one a month over four months. And then you've got the whole sort of her her whole backstory in those four stories. Mm. And I'm just preparing a new story now, which is going to be like a prequel to the third book. Um, So, you know, you you can't, I guess that's the way you can do that as an author is you can say, look, here's a little, well, I mean, Mark Hood did it last week with, you know, he's got his sequel to War of the Worlds and he he released a a lead magnet called Amy Story, which I finished last night and really enjoyed. Um, uh, So, you know, that is, I guess, the way that we can do that. We can't necessarily sell it, but we can use it as a lead magnet to get newsletter subscribers and drive some interest and bang the drum before release. What I love about this model is it breaks down this incredibly huge mission that people are scared of doing, which is writing a whole book, you know, Mm, writing. Like it feels like such a massive undertaking. I know a lot of people listen to this show are are planning on writing their, their novel one day, but they just don't have the time just yet. And I think when you, when you start to break it down, I think, well, what if I just wrote part one, and then could get that out there and you start to get the benefit of the feedback loop that we know is so important in helping us little writers like isolated in our little boxes to actually you know, interact with the world out there. And so I love that this is possibly an entry point for many people who, you know, they're not ready to write a full length novel yet, but they, they definitely maybe give part one of a four part series a crack. Yeah. I think it's great. So if that's you, do it. Yeah, there you go. And challenge for this week. <laughs> and, we, and we know it works because it's nothing new. I mean, uh, Conan Doyle yeah. and Dickens used to do this. When I was a bookseller, yeah. um, Stephen King brought out The Green Mile, uh, one a right. month from March to August. So yeah. boom, 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 boom. They were like, were they a pound each or something? And of course that made, you know, that was eventually released as a novel and made into a movie. Well, worthwhile little exercise he did there because it was a massive film as well, wasn't it? Yeah, well, it was a, it was a massive success. It was um, it was the idea, I believe, of Malcolm Edwards, who I used to work with at Orion, who was a genius for this kind of thing. And he and, and I think he and Stephen King had a conversation and said, "Well, if you want to do a serial, serial like this, let's do it." And he wow. put the whole backing of a. It's the it it's um. What's interesting is it's an Orion. It's the only Stephen King book on Orion's list because Malcolm had that idea, and I don't think. Uh, Stephen's publisher in the States, regular publisher, wanted anything to do with it because of that upheaval. But wow. Orion made it an event. So and it was so the Green Mile was released by Orion. Yeah. That's yeah. amazing. And if you think back, I mean, I, I might be wrong here, but I think of all of the Stephen King 
books, novellas, novels that were turned into film. And Green Mile's got to be, if not the biggest, maybe Misery's probably his biggest ever movie, maybe. But um, but the Green Mile's got to be up there in the top it's up three, there. I reckon. I think, I think Shawshank is probably, in terms of most oh, fun. Yeah, that's Shawshank true. was a Shawshank, Shawshank was huge. Yeah, was a flop. Shawshank was a flop when it came out. It didn't do well at all. But DVD and VHS, so it became one of those things. Pe- people watched it, watched it again, recommended it to their friends. Word right. of mouth, and it's now. I think it's one of the few films on IMDb that has a hundred percent rating. Or Here something we go. Like that's that, something we should look up for next. Next, uh, <laughs> or if you know, send us Stephen King's top five movies and i want to know where green mile was within that but listen mark we've got to get us down to some serious discussion now because i think it's time to start a campaign i do i think it's time i think it's time and we were in a position to do this because i have a real thing okay i'm I'm off on my rant again there you go I, i have a real thing about 99p books not not because not because authors are having to sell their books at 99p, but to me, it just seems like daylight robbery. <laughs> Absolute daylight robbery. And and the fact that, like, Kathy said, you know, oh, you're ripping us off, you're extra quid. It's like, oh, come on, guys. No, seriously. Like, you, if you dropped a pound or a dollar in the street, would you go home and, like, you know, sit there crying for, like, the next two? No, you'd be like, oh, no, I dropped like this is the this is like the work of an author who's who's possibly spent one two ten years writing this book and then people are like it's a like you've always said it's a race to the bottom and i think it should be banned i think there should be a minimum (laughs) price for ebooks for any book in the world i think it should be a minimum i think it should be like five five pounds four nine four ninety nine something like and to to recognize the and uh, recognize the value of what goes into writing a book? Because 90, when, when did this happen? Like, well, at what point in society did we decide that it was actually legitimate to sell a book for 99p? That's less than a than an ice cream that you can get from your, your local ice cream van. Honestly. I, I don't I know you haven't been in the UK for a while, but ice cream's two pound fifty, mate. Well, exactly. Yeah. Exactly. Like what <laughs> I mean, talk about like is that the, the weird thing is right now. I mean, there are much, obviously, I'm kind of jesting, but I am serious as well. I am serious as well. But I mean, and and right now there's much bigger things in the world to worry about, obviously. But like you think about the cost of goods going up. The problem with the 99p is you can never increase it. Dollar stores have done it over here. They call themselves dollar stores, but there's nothing in there for a dollar anymore. Yeah, we have pound stores as well, yeah. Yeah. It's like it's a dollar (laughs) store, which means there's nothing... Less than a dollar, but um, but the 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 ninety nine p that you're stuck, aren't you? Like, who's going to one day say one ninety nine because of inflation? I mean, eventually, inflation's going to take it to that, but no yeah. one wants to shift, and it's ridiculous, it's silly. It's a silly amount of money. I, I do love it. I do love it when you go off on one. Um, well. <laughs> Speaking as someone whose book, The Crow Folk, was in the Kindle monthly deal for 99p and and got into the top top 20 of some very good uh, uh, categories. But no, I agree. I mean, it is um, interestingly in the States, promo prices seem to be going up. Uh, 2.99 seems to be a promo price now, 1.99. Yeah, but even that, Mark, 2.99. Like, you go back 10 years, how much did we pay for a paperback? How much Uh, did we pay for a hardback? Yeah, never. Uh, it was never two ninety nine. 
No, no. And it's um, it's interesting. Books have not really gone up by the, with cost of living. They really because haven't. Because each, each year, like, let, let's talk about inflation quickly. Let's let's go to economics. We've never done economics. <laughs> I love a bit of economics. But if you think about what's happening in the world right now, obviously, we're being told that inflation is about 7%, roughly. 7%. So that means the 99p book a year ago is now worth, and I can't do the reverse of 7%, but it's it's kind of about 90p, right? So you lost, you lost like, you know, between 7, 8, 9, 10%, whatever it is. But the crazy thing is, is that if you look into the statistics behind how they measure inflation, they are using a different basket of goods today yes. than they used back in the 80s. So when we say, oh, it's, it's you know, it was 15% back in the 80s, well, they were measuring it against a different basket of goods, which apparently all the bright econom- economists out there have said that 7% today is more like 15% in the 80s. So the cost of living is going up, and yet um, we're still doing this ridiculous like 99p book price. It's weird that you bring this up as well, because uh, a couple of days ago, I recorded an interview with Erica James, who's coming back to the podcast. Fantastic. Uh, and, and the thing that came up in the conversation was... Um, uh, the journalist and writer, Catelyn Moran, she put a column in the Times, and this is based on a tweet she saw from a writer called Andrew Mackey, which uh, she was saying, look, you know, Mother's Day is coming up in the UK, and you buy a card for Mother's Day, and you'll spend three, four quid. Oh, at least, and, yeah. At least. Four, you know. <laughs> for what, d- what is know, to, a to terribly most... written poem, bit of prose. Yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> right? Oh, uh, you know, How long does that to, take? A lo- to a lovely mum, bloody, bloody, yeah, blah, yeah. or whatever, you know. Bashing uh, 10 or 20 of those out a day. We don't think anything of spending four quid on one of those. And yet we all get the hives when we want to spend eight quid on a paperback, which is, consists of 80, 90, 100,000 words. It, and it's she, ridiculous. Catelyn was, sugge- <laughs> was saying, based on this thing she saw from a, a tweet, um, she was saying, why don't we just start sending paperbacks as cards? You know, and, and you can go into a second-hand bookshop and buy a perfectly good book for 50p or a pound and yeah. gift it to someone as a card. You know, dear mum, I think you'll love this book for Mother's Day, but, you know, buy Kathy's book or Erica's book. You know, That's but, brilliant. But, you know, and just say, and, and one, it doesn't get thrown in the recycling after two weeks, and two, it stays on their bookshelf forevermore. And, you know, there's a lovely sweet message in there. So as well. what about, what about, okay, indie authors out there in the world, what about creating the card? inside cover like so you print the card that can be written out to someone it can be a gift book it's a clever idea genius gift a gift 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 books they'll call it call them gift books in the wikipedia entry though you've got to attribute that to this podcast episode (laughs) because it started here but i'll let everyone have it go and go for it try it you can have that one for free yeah that one for free like everything else in the world like the 99p books which is basically like 0p with inflation right now but the point is the point is is that i think (laughs) all right shall i say this i think we need to ban the 99p book and if everyone did it then it would become oh maybe we might even push it to 199 my goodness me that is almost a packet hobnobs i think mark out here but the point is is that if everyone does it that's where we're going to start to get the value back because here's the thing when you see a book for 99p i really believe i really believe that the value of something is usually shown in the price of it like, look at the rest of the world, right? Look at the everything. Like, if you want to buy a Tesla, over here, you're going to be paying 50, 
$50,000, $55,000, but you know you're going to get maybe a better car than mm. something that's going to cost you $20,000. Um, I'm not so sure it's the case of watches. I've always had a bit of a thing about paying yes. like Rolex. I think that's just a bit of a... Headphones know, as well. Headphones. Headphones, Don't get me started abs- on. headphones yeah. as well, yeah. So yeah. We we're discluding <laughs> headphones from this discussion <laughs> and watches, but everything else, you know, like organic food. You know, I've, tr- I've, I've grown organic food. I know how hard it, how much it costs, how much extra work you've got to do because you can't just blitz the land with like, you know, Roundup or whatever. But it, it costs more because there's more involved in actually creating that food and therefore it's probably better for you and healthier for you. You know, mm-hmm. so there's, there's, a, there's a link. But when people see a book for 99p, to me, that is discounting the, 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 the value of it. It makes it feel cheap and rubbish, to be honest. And I know that we've had to do it as well. And we've, you know, but I know a lot of authors, as they start to build success, I think Shannon Mayer was, was telling me about this um, fairly recently. Like, I think her books are now all like four ninety nine, three ninety, yeah. like, you know, yeah. and yeah, promotions, obviously. But please, folks, like, value your books. Don't, if you, if you, if you, if you want to do a special, go for it, but don't price your books at 99 cents or 99p ongoing because i think it just devalues it and i think we all need to stop doing it to bring back the value the perceived value at least in what books are and how they should be valued by the readers and how they should be valued by by the world here here and this is where i apologize to listeners in australia where because of increased um, paper prices ingrams have asked us to put the paperback of back to reality up by a dollar sorry Sorry. Yeah, we're putting it up by a dollar. Yeah. So go buy it. Go buy it and, and, and love the fact that, you see, the other thing is, the other bit that we're not talking about here, and we should do a whole show on this, but we will do a whole show on this, a two oh, no. marks rant special. Oh, no. no, we should, because I think it's really important. The other thing is, is that, you know, if you, if you're writing, if you're, if you're writing, um, if you're writing a book and you get stuck in that 99p, it's very hard to get out of it because, and everyone does it because everyone else does it because everyone else is doing it. Mm. That's, that's the business logic behind it. There's no, I once set a business up back in the nineties and it got replicated by about 400 other websites. I was the first to do it. It was to sell, buy and sell property online. It was back in the, before Amazon, before eBay, before Google. And one day I was sitting there and I thought, well, I've got, I've got to price this up. What's the, what's the property advert going to cost? And honestly, I went, finger in the air, <laughs> £47. I don't know why. <laughs> I, heard the, I heard the word. I, I, knew, I, looked at, I did research it, but I knew that seven seemed to be a kind of magic number. It wasn't quite nine. I didn't want to go 49.99 and play that. I thought 47, that feels a solid number. Well, I'll tell you something, Mark. How many of those 400 websites that copied my idea over the next five years, what do you think their pricing was? Have a Ooh, guess. Was it 47 quid? It bloody was. It was $47. <laughs> and I remember one day we created this association and we were on like the BBC News and everything. And we all got together, all these people that, that, that copied my idea. And they and so many of them came up to me and said, Mark, really interesting. You know, the 47 pounds, you know, that, that figure, that was that magic figure. Like, where did you, where, you know, how did that come about? And I'm like, I just made it up. And they were like, what? We thought you'd like researched it and da, 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 da. I said, no, I just guessed it. I just guessed it. So, um, you know, this 99p, it, it's just somebody did it once and got to number one and everyone's like, oh, okay. And it's become the norm and it shouldn't be the norm. 
Books shouldn't sell for less than four four ninety nine. Ebooks. It, it, it could be. <laughs> it could be worse. I remember a time before Kindle when Sony had an e-reader, and to grab their share of the market, they were selling novels for twenty p. Oh. And but what what happened was now, now here's the good thing. We hadn't, as publishers, we hadn't okayed that. So we said to them, you're still paying us the full royalty based on the full price, which we did. So, so that was a very a good loss. year for my Christmas bonus and a very good year for all those authors who did tremendously oh well out of it. But yeah, Sony made a massive loss. And then Kindle, because the Sony device, you had to plug it in to your PC and you had to download an app that interacted with it. And, and then Kindle came along with a device where it was all in, it was all wireless and you didn't have to do it. Anyway, that's a whole other story. Let's actually... Go on, go on, go on, go on. <laughs> I was going <laughs> to We've got a spotlight to do. Oh, no. We've got a spotlight so- to do. I know. I'm sorry, folks. This has gone off. We've gone off on one here. But to be continued. And if you, if you agree... Now, this is interesting. If you agree with the rant or if you disagree with the rant, we want to hear from you because I think this is what this is all about. Let's have a discussion. Let's have a debate about this. Let's find out about why you think 99p books are great or 99 cent books. But if you, if you agree with it, um, I want to hear, I want to get a sense as to whether I'm touching a nerve or touching, <laughs> you know, or, 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 people, or authors agree with this and maybe even readers. Um, one thing I'm going to throw in as a teaser for when we do this as a special, I think there's a new model that we should invent. And the model is, if you want to sell your book at 99p, you put it at the back of your book. Look, I sold this for 99. You might have bought this. For, if you bought this for 99p and you loved it, please come to my site and give me a tip if you loved it. And we do a tip jar as an author. So, mm. all right, if you didn't like the book, fair enough. But if you absolutely loved it and you think it's worth way more than 99, then go and pay the rest of it once you've finished it. That could be an interesting model. And I wonder if anyone's going to try that out as well. Anyway, to be <laughs> continued, because you're right, Mark, we have... An incredible spotlight today. Now, the spotlights is when we take uh, we we we, t- we pluck an author out of the bestseller academy, and we give them a we give them a, a spotlight on the show because of incredible things they're doing. And today, we are focusing on an incredible academy that we've got called Tom Evans. And I know Mark, you've you've chatted with Tom as well, haven't you? Um, love Tom, love Tom to bits, and he's looking for an agent. So agents. Sit up, listen up, because you want to talk about an author who innovates and or the hardest working author in show business as well. I mean, the stuff that Tom has done. Uh, so Tom is an established author. He's already written 15 nonfiction and short story books, and he's got several more that he's co-authored. Uh, he focuses on uh, writing about creativity, and he's been great in the Academy because he, he always contributes, always you know has great ideas. He writes about mindfulness, philosophy, metaphysics. Uh, but before all this, he wrote a novel that he never published and uh it's called soul waves a future history and it's uh it's about the future of humanity and the end of life as we know it in less than 100 years but in lockdown in the first lockdown he wrote a set of 12 short stories called soul waves insertions that are prequels and sequels to the novel so go back to you know i guess kathy and this whole idea of having short stories that build a bigger universe. And uh, this year he's writing Soul Waves, the Duodex, which starts way in the future and brings the whole thing to a conclusion. Uh, so, you know, this is all this is all good. And I love this. Each of the, the first two books is accompanied by an album of ambient music, which you can listen to while reading. And I'm disappointed in you, Mr. D, that you didn't come up with this first. Well, I know, <laughs> right? No, but this is why I love what Tom's doing, because actually, I mean, a massive part of Tom's background is he does guided meditations. This is his this is his thing. And he has got, if any of you are on the 
app called Insight Timer, look up Tom Evans. He has a huge, huge number of people that listen to his guided meditations. And what Tom's doing is absolutely brilliant is he's taking all of these different talents that he has, and he's kind of looking at ways to integrate them. So, and he's just, he's just a, he's just a wonderful person. He's out there like bringing goodness to the world. And I think right now, especially with everything everyone's been through and everything, everything's, everyone's going through right now, this is, this could be an absolutely fantastic idea. And we're, we've seen this before, haven't we, Mark, where, where authors have kind of combined books with soundtracks and the like, but combining it with a soundtrack that is, is something which is kind of a healing meditative journey for people. I mean, could be a very, very powerful, com- com, you know, combination when then combined with with his book soul waves as well so any any agents that kind of are fascinated by that i know there's a ton of agents out there that are into you know meditation and the like do well, the, get in contact with tom i mean tom says here i'm now ready to step up and get a bestseller out there um why not that netflix amazon prime or apple tv series too now if anyone could do it i think it's tom because you know he's um He's built a house from scratch. They're refurbishing a bungalow. You know, he's getting the whole world to meditate. He, he, he does remind me of you, Mister D. He's he's a he's a Do doer. Yeah, he's a oh. doer. He gets things done. You know, so um, he's definitely a soulmate. I'd say that. And yeah, then think, yeah. and he's this whole mission about trying to get the world to meditate one person at a time. He's doing for absolutely nothing. He's doing that all off the just the, the, the goodness of his heart and the kindness. So. I think, I think if there's an agent out there that's looking for like one of the most wonderful people on this planet, you want to get in contact with Tom and find out more about his his book. And you can do that by visiting his website, actually. And if you're interested in finding out more about all his meditation, it's all on there. Um, Tom Evans, E-V-A-N-S dot co, just dot C-O. So Tom Evans dot C-O. And Tom, we wish you all the best and um, we can't wait to see. I mean, obviously, how you're, you're obviously already growing within the academy. We can't wait to see where this might lead. Absolutely. And we'll put a link in the show notes to that as well, so you can find him nice and easy. And if you enjoyed this week's rant, I mean, episode, um, you can subscribe, rate, and review uh, wherever you get your podcasts from. Uh, thanks, as always, to Dave and JD, our editors. And come and find us on social media. Uh, we're at Facebook Bestseller Experiment. Twitter and Instagram is at Bestseller X. P. Fantastic. And don't forget, folks, support this podcast if you like the rants and you want more of them. Well, <laughs> support the podcast, bestsellerexperiment.com forward slash support. And if you want to, like Tom, take your, your writing to the next level, then come and join Mark and I at the Academy, the Bestseller Academy. Uh, you can sign up today. It's best. Uh, it's academy.bestsellerexperiment.com. And we can't wait to become your coaches uh, it's so much so much fun and it's so inspiring come and join us so mr stay um rant ended i just was thinking um what are we going to be like when we're 80 and we're doing this god can you imagine Waldorf it'd be, and abs- Statler from it would be the hilarious <laughs> Is it, are we just warming up that's what i want to am i just warming up um no i'll be back i'll be back to my uh, calm calm self you need to meditate week. I do, meditate. I do. I'm going to go and listen to some of Tom's, uh, obviously, <laughs> yeah. I'll, go and, I'll go and listen to some of Tom's meditations and I'll be all back and grounded 
next week. But no, I'm, to be honest, I do, I do, I do love a little bit of a, a laugh. But um, thank you so much for joining us. And if you've stuck with us, you know this has probably been one of our longest ever episodes. Yeah, we got. Um, I apologise for that. Shorter. It's all my fault. But thank you for sticking with us, and I hope you've had fun along the way as well. So listen, have a great week, Mr. State. I can't wait to you chat do. with you next week. And it's a goodbye from Mark One <laughs> and a goodbye from Mark Two. <laughs> Good- Zen, everyone. <laughs> goodbye. goodbye. <laughs>